Well, we're working through this series, uh, Long Lost Family, inevitably uh, a great title for the story of Joseph. Most of us know a little bit of the story of Joseph, but what we've arrived at now is, um, it really is the pits. And, and if we think about where we've got to, just take a few big steps, we started out in the story of Joseph with such hope, actually. We had these dreams Dreams for Joseph, or dreams that Joseph uh, shared with his family, which caused huge resentment, huge hatred. But the hope that was kind of interwoven into those dreams was the idea that one day Joseph would be the one who would be exalted. Nothing at this point in time could be further from the truth. Here's this young guy. He's been taken by his brothers. He's been thrown into a pit. Uh, a great big stone, carved out stone hole in the ground that would be used to store water. That's, if that wasn't bad enough, that fills me with horror, the idea of being thrown into a claustrophobic hole in the ground. If that wasn't bad enough, he then gets sold by his brothers into slavery. This seems as if there is a bit of an improvement for Joseph. Because as he ends up in that uh, slave role, he's bought by Potiphar, who sees potential because of the, the character and the faithfulness of Joseph, uh, and he's elevated to a role in the household which would have been beyond any possible dream for a slave at that point. Could it be possible that somebody could be exalted and given that kind of security? And then we found at the end of the last chapter from that great rise to there couldn't have been a deeper fall, he is back in a dungeon. He's probably been in Egypt now. It's it's only a few chapters, isn't it? Probably been in Egypt for around about 10 years. An amazing length of time. We don't know really how long he's been uh, in the the dungeon at this point in time. But he's seemingly alone. Nothing could be worse. Imagine. I want you to imagine just in our own lives. Just in our employment. We can feel very often as though the whole world has collapsed. If we have... I've been there. I know what this is like. We lose our job and we feel as if... The world has fallen apart and then we are provided with another job and and we move forward and then it can all fall apart again. Sometimes our lives are like that, aren't they? They peak and trough like a roller coaster ride. Joseph is in exactly that same situation. And I guess in that way he speaks out to all of us in a powerful way because we ask the question at that moment in time, is it possible that God is still with me? Is it possible because of the fact that I might say that I believe and I trust in God? Well, that's all well and good. But in the middle of this crisis, can I still believe that God is with me? Because it doesn't look like God is with me. It looks as if the wheels have fallen off. The idea of faith in this God is a waste of time because it hasn't worked out. Maybe you've been a Christian for a relatively short space of time. One of the damaging 
ideas behind the introduction of the message of Jesus to this world time and time again, and we hear it again and again, is if you put your faith in Jesus, everything will be great. Everything will be worked out. If you give, you will receive. If you invest or if you plant these seeds of giving, then you will definitely receive multitude upon multitude. Everything will be great. Everything will be fine. And there are countless people. I've spoken to so many people over these past years who have said that I've I've put my faith in this Jesus and life has not worked out like that. Let me encourage you by saying... When you place yourself in that place, you are aligning yourself with countless numbers of people in the Bible. Paul in the New Testament. Joseph in the Old Testament. People who have put their trust in God, and yet in human terms, it doesn't look as if God is with them. But the narrator says something different. The end of the last chapter, he says this. The Lord was with him. Every step of the way, what the narrator is insisting that we understand is that in spite of what it looks like, God is with him. In other words, we must not measure whether God is with me by how well life is going. That's not a way to measure whether God is with me, whether life is good. God is with me. Because he promises to be with me. (laughs) That's why he's with me. He's faithful. He's never going to leave me. That's what he promises. And life can ebb and life can flow. And the one constant is that God is with me. And what's more, what the the narrator is insisting that we understand through the whole of this story is that God isn't just with me, but he is sovereignly over every issue in life. Now, just think about that. I don't know how many is in this room. But the, the issues in my life are not just the issues in my life, are they? You might say, well, of course they are, but they're not. An issue in my life has a knock-on effect to my family and wider people who I know and people who I'm in contact with. So if certain things work out in a particular way, then I guess that Issues in my life affect some people in here. Uh, And your issues in your life affect some people in here and might affect me. Might affect the person next to you. Now just think about that complexity. I was trying to work out how can we get a handle on the complexity of that. I'll give you a really simple picture. Um, One of the things, some of you know that I'm I'm interested in bikes. And one of the things that I've not yet cracked, is because I love a bit of bike mechanic in as well, but one of the things that I've not got sorted yet is building wheels on a bike. You've got, on the back wheel, you've got 36 spokes. That's only 36 spokes, it's not many. Not many connections to this rim. But 36 spokes, you tighten a spoke on one side of the wheel, inside of a circle, no, you know what I mean, you're down, down at the bottom, you tighten that spoke, and it makes a difference up there, not just 
it, it kind of pulls it all down and then you tighten it and it pulls it out that way. So you tighten another one, it pulls it that way. And you've only got 36 spokes, but the complexity of trying to get all of these spokes so that this wheel is nice and true and perfectly lined. And a friend of mine down in Castleford is brilliant, brilliant at doing this. And I kind of watch him building these wheels and I think, oh wow, imagine being able to do that. That's just 36 little things, 36 little connections, all, all enclosed within one little rim. And we, say, and we pause and we say, do you know what? When we look at that level of complexity, what the narrator is suggesting to us is that it is impossible for the idea that God is just going to drop in and out and dabble here and there. He can't do that. It's impossible to just dabble here and there because the complexities and the knock-on effects and all of the intricacies of connections and events and all of those kind of things do not give space for that. And yet the narrator is saying, God is sovereign and working out all of these things. Let's see how. Well, the first thing that we see is that Joseph is in prison. And he's been elevated once again. His character has shone out. He goes to Potiphar's house and his character shines out. He ends up working as a prisoner for the chief of the guard or the captain of the guard. And, and he, his character shines out. The captain of the guard trusts this prisoner with the prison is the, is the picture that is portrayed. And there comes a day when two key people are thrown into the jail. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt. The cupbearer is an incredibly important role in Egypt. If you've done any study of Egyptian history, one of the fascinating, in fact, pretty much most ancient history or medieval history, one of the things that you find is there is a just, it is littered with people who have been poisoned. It's the way to get rid of the king or get rid of the queen, is you poison them. And so in the ancient world, to protect from that, there would be the role of the baker or the, the people in charge of food were not just simple kind of roles. They were significant roles. They were roles with the potential to do incredible amount of damage. They were high-profile roles. And the cupbearer would be the person who would drink the drink before Pharaoh. In other words, he's putting... Not that he had much choice. <laughs> he's putting his neck on the line so that if the cup is poisoned, he gets poisoned instead of Pharaoh. And because of that, it ended up that people in these roles had astounding power. They had political power because they ended up very much being the person who the, the Pharaoh trusted. I trust you because you're putting your life at stake for me. And therefore, very often, those individuals were the very individuals who ended up enmeshed in the treason plots to take out the ruler. And here we have these two men where Pharaoh is angry with them and he puts them into custody because it says they've offended him. In other, what the, the language there is actually saying is they have kind of, they've sinned against him. There is a transgression according to Pharaoh, against these two men, and they are in custody. After they've been in custody for some time, don't know how long, 
Joseph goes into these two men, and in good, in good, do you remember the do you remember the line in Shrek? I think it's one of the funniest lines when Donkey's got this kind of really miserable face, and some one of the people characters says to him, "Donkey, why the long face?" Which well, I thought it was funny. Anyway, I thought it was really great, but. Uh, Joseph goes in and says, why are you so glum, effectively? What's wrong with you? Why are you so sad today? Because we've had dreams. In the ancient world, not just the, those who had faith in the God of the Bible, but pretty much every religious movement invested huge significance in dreams. Dreams were key. Dreams gave an insight into that other world. I guess if we just think about it in, our, in a kind of non-technological world, you can kind of understand that. There's a sort of otherworldness of dreams, isn't there? There's a, something outside of our world which is going on. There is a, a, a connectedness to something deeper and richer and, and beyond our normal sense of uh, of connection, and so dreams were a significant thing. And they'd been in custody, and they were concerned because these two miserable servants had had a dream. Uh, and, and Joseph, his response is quite amazing, isn't it? He speaks to them, and he says to them, what's wrong with you? This dream. I, I guess for Joseph, he goes into these two men, and they say, he, lo- he sees them miserable and they say, well, we've both on the same night had really significant dreams. Now, I, I, I don't know about you. I, don't ask Rachel at the end what my dreams are like. They, she will fill you with horror what some of my dreams are like. Some dreams are incredibly vivid, aren't they? But for Joseph, it was beyond that. Here's here's this man who knows that in the past, at various points in not just his life, but in the life of his father and beyond, there has been significance in dreams. And he walks into this room in the prison, and two men confront him and say, we've both had significant dreams. I guess for Joseph, it must have been one of those spine-tingling, you know, hair-on-the-arm, stand-up kind of moments. He knows that there is something more significant. There is a, that he is attuned to the possibility that God is about to intervene in a dungeon in Egypt. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's what he is sensitive to. How do we know that? Because we know how he answers His answer, his interpretation is this. Basically, he says in verse 8, Joseph said, Do not interpretations belong to God? No interpretations belong to God. So tell me your dreams. (laughs) That's, That's bizarre, isn't it? Don't interpretations belong to God? Therefore, don't tell me your dreams would have been the logical next thing to say, wouldn't it? Unless he really believed in the true God that he worshipped. 
In other words, he's saying interpretations belong to God and I believe that my God is the God who interprets dreams. Joseph has been in Egypt for maybe up to 10 years or so. He has been surrounded by Ra and Isis and all of the other Egyptian gods. He has been by himself as a Hebrew. He has been by himself as a a kind of a remnant of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of the Bible. He's been by himself. And yet, in that situation, he still says, it is my God who can interpret dreams. I've been surrounded by every other representation. Spend a bit of time looking at Egyptian history, and one of the things that jumps out is all of the gods. (laughs) It is an incredibly religiously orientated culture. There are so many gods which are being spoken about. So many gods for different seasons. And yet Joseph says, tell me your dreams because my God, essentially, he's saying this, my God is the true God. That's what he's saying. It's a brave statement. It is one of the most significant statements of faith that we see Joseph makes in all of his uh, places of despair. He said, I still believe in God. I still believe the God of my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. I still believe that when God said to Abram, my great-grandfather, that there is going to be a great nation out of your children, I still believe that. I still believe that that God has made a covenant promise to our family. That's significant, isn't it? Because in this situation, everything looks like Joseph should not believe that. Because it looks like he's, he's cut off from that covenant family. And yet he says he believes God. But there's something more, and it takes us back to our, our spokes on the wheel, doesn't it? Because interpretations are not just ideas. The outcome of an interpretation is an event in the minds of these people. In other words, the cupbearer and the baker are saying, we we know these dreams are significant. We know that they are speaking about the future. Therefore, Joseph says, tell me them. Because my God isn't essentially what he's saying. My God isn't just the interpreter of dreams. My God is the God who holds the future. You can't interpret dreams and then hope that they might come true. The only way that you can interpret dreams is if you have the ability for them to come true in the future. If you hold not just the idea, but the reality of the outcome. And Joseph is saying, cupbearer, baker, my God, who interprets dreams, holds the outcome. He's saying to the cupbearer and the baker, my God, hold your future in his hands. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? My God, 
your God, if you believe in God, in the, the God of the Bible, Joseph is saying, the narrator is saying, your God holds your future in his hands. That is an incredible thing. That is an awesome thing. I watched a program during this past week. It's about a guy who's looking at medical tests, pros and cons of medical tests, whether we should go for them or not. Fascinating, really interesting. One of the tests that he did was a DNA profile, which um, gave him this huge report. All sorts of information in this DNA profile. One of the things that he said, he wasn't sure whether to click on the report on his computer screen. Did he want to read it? Because one of the reports on there was whether he was, he was likely to suffer from Alzheimer's. Wow, that is heavy stuff, isn't it? That is massive stuff. You know, there are times when, and, and I, what I found interesting was that this presenter, he said, he clicked on it for the sake of the program. But the next one was whether he was susceptible to Parkinson's disease. And he said, I am not clicking on that one. One of the things that he concluded was, I actually don't want to know the future. I don't want to know the future. It's too big. The outcomes are just too huge. The possibilities and the, and the issues are just so vast. I understand that. I, I get what he's saying. Do you know what? I don't want to know the future. Why do we want to know the future? Because we're sat in that dilemma of, well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be okay? Or is it not going to be okay? But if I know it's not going to be okay, do I want to know that it's not going to be okay? And what this says is, no matter what the future is, the Lord is with you, Joseph. I cannot know the future. I cannot know what is going to happen in the future. We cannot know what is going to happen in the future and still have peace. Not because we've got control, but because we believe and we trust in a God who has the future in His hands. It's a powerful thing. Because the outcome of these two dreams... It's pretty powerful, isn't it? The play on the words is quite clever, really. The cupbearer is the first to respond. Tell me your dreams, says Joseph. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He was straight in there. Straight out with it. I'll tell you my dream. And there were three branches. Or three, three vines. Or three branches. There's a little bit of a play on threes here. It's quite clever. There's three branches and they blossomed, budded, and ripened. And then he took them, he squeezed them, and he put them in the cup. It's a little play that, that the whole story goes on with, which is, if you're interested in the way the stories are constructed in the, in the Hebrew language, it's quite interesting the way the narrator constructs this. There's three branches and then he does three things, and oh, there are three things that happen, and then there's three things that he does. It's quite interesting. And the outcome, Joseph says, is the three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you'll put Pharaoh's cup in his hands, just as you used to do when you were cupbearer. 
That is great news, isn't it? In the middle of a dungeon, a dream gives hope. I I find it fascinating, the the kind of motivation, mostly comes from America. I've noticed that, you know, some of our downloads go to America, so anybody listening on download, I apologize ahead of time, but a lot of the kind of motivational talk is, you know, follow your dreams, and you kind of think, well, uh, only if they're good, (laughs) and actually, do I really have control of my dreams anyway? What this is saying is that God has your life in His hands, cupbearer. My God has your life in His hands, and you're going to be lifted up. You're going to be elevated. Well, that's a great result, so the baker jumps in. (laughs) That's the way the narrator describes it. This is what it means. When the baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph what his dream was. I think it's fantastic the way the narrator is constructing this. The, The baker is reticent to tell the story until the outcome is great. And then he pours out his story. Well, I had three baskets on my head, and they were great uh, breads and a fascinating little bit of information, a bit of a diversion. They found ancient uh, uh, remnants, 57, I think it was, 57 different recipes for bread in the ancient Egyptian world. Isn't that amazing? It's not hard to fill three baskets on that basis. He's got all of these things, on these three baskets, with all of these delicacies for Pharaoh on his head, and the birds are coming and eating them. And Joseph says, yes. Pharaoh's going to lift off your head. That's, a, that's another clever little play on words, isn't it? Pharaoh's going to lift up your head, and Pharaoh's going to lift off your head. I'm not sure I want to know the future now. It might have been better not to know. So, I guess Joseph walked out the room. There is nothing to describe the emotions or the thoughts or the conversations that went on in that period of time, other than to say that on the third day it was Pharaoh's birthday. Imagine the conversations that must have gone on between those two men. They were obviously together because they talked about the fact that they'd had these two dreams. And then it's Pharaoh's birthday. And Pharaoh brings in these two men. And he lifted up the heads of the chief bearer, chief cupbearer, and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. And he restored one to his position and he impaled the other. Exactly the outcome as promised. It was fulfilled. What, what has this got to do with anything about God's plan of salvation? Well, I heard a really helpful description of one of the ways that God works in the Old Testament is He doesn't necessarily 
create absolutely determined, committed descriptions of what is to come. But what he does is he flavors things or he creates little shadows that we might consider and we might think about. And one of the things that really jumps out to me is this. There was another three days, wasn't there? And else was there another three days? There was another three days when Jesus was effectively dead. Another three days when at the end of it, there was justice done. What the narrator is suggesting in the way that the cupbearer and the baker are describing not only how they give over their stories, but in the outcome, is that the Pharaoh has made inquiries about the treacherous plot, and one has been proved to be innocent, and one has been proved to be guilty. One is finally elevated. One is finally crushed and killed. The the plot is opened up. And on the joyful day of Pharaoh's birthday, justice is done. One is lifted up and one is killed. Where do we go with this? I think we go backwards and we go forwards. Just as we close, let me suggest this. There are two dreams. There's another two dreams, isn't there? There's the two dreams that we mentioned right at the beginning when we look back. Two dreams which Joseph had about him being elevated. Now we've got another two dreams. Two dreams which have actually come to pass. There's a little kind of throw the idea out there, isn't there, in the storyline. Well, those two dreams back there, they haven't come to fruition, have they? In fact, everything looks as if they're not going to come to fruition. And yet the narrator throws in, in fact, God shapes the events of life so that there are another true dreams in the life of Joseph which actually prove to come true. What might that suggest to us? That those two dreams back there are also going to come true. What does that tell us? It tells us surely that the God of the Bible, when He says that certain things are going to happen, they come true. The events that He says are going to unfold, they do unfold. You see, there was those other three days that we, we hint at when we look forward. We hint at, we get a shadow of another three days. We get a shadow of a three days where there is, in one sense, there is exactly the same outcome. In a sense, there is one man slain and there is one man living. That's the idea that we see where 
at the cross. That's what the cross brings us. The cross brings us one man in Jesus who is both slain and alive. He is destroyed and resurrected. He is the bearer of sin and He is the triumphant King over. He is the one who achieves over in, in that very same place. And yet I think there is something even more amazing that gives us a little flavor which has the potential to connect you and me to this. And it's Joseph's response when he tells the cupbearer his story. He says, when you are back in your elevated place, remember me. Remember me when you're exalted. Does that spark any thoughts in your mind? It might not. But for many of us, it will. Because there is another helpless person who is in exactly that same helpless situation, who turns to Jesus and He says, as they are hanging on a cross, as they are both essentially lost, He says, when you are exalted, will you remember Me? Will you remember Me? Will you remember Me when you are exalted? Because I am helpless. I am lost. I am hopeless. There is nothing that I can bring. But you, you're the one who's going to be exalted. You're the one who is going to be raised. And so this helpless thief turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me? And Jesus says this, today you will be with me in paradise. I will remember you. He's essentially what he says. It seems as though the whole thing falls apart again at the end of this. I love the way the narrator builds the story up. It looks at the end of verse uh, 22 as if everything is going to work out, doesn't it? Uh, here's the chief cupbearer. He's been exalted. And, and Joseph has been the one who... It's only three days. Not like they have had to let, wait three years for the dream to be interpreted. It's three days and the cupbearer is, is now elevated. Surely, surely this means now that Joseph is going to be freed. And the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. <laughs> that sounds like a tragedy, doesn't it? Except that our God is the one who is in control. Back to the spokes. If God gives little shadows and ideas of, of an idea of salvation way back centuries and centuries before Jesus lived, and then He makes it abundantly clear in the life of Jesus where for three days He is lost and then He lives... And he points out that there is the possibility for one person to say to Jesus, will you remember me when you are exalted? And Jesus says, yes, you'll be with me 
today in paradise, is that not saying to us that the God that the Bible represents is one who says to you and me, yeah, you are in a dungeon, you are lost, you are hopeless, but I am the one who is working out all of history beyond 36 spokes. The infinite number of connections in this world the impossibility of being able to hold all of that together. The fact that, that cupbearers forget. The fact that there's responsibility for the sin of the cupbearer and the baker against Pharaoh. They are culpable. And yet at the same time, in some mysterious way, which is beyond my understanding or your understanding, God is there. And He says to you, Will you trust me? Will you trust me, he says. Will, I guess, we say, Lord, will you remember me? Will you remember me? I guess a bit like Joseph, a bit like the thief on the cross. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Lord, will you remember me? What's the answer? The answer is yes. I will remember you because I am working out the whole of the history of this world for one event where I will be the Savior of the world so that all who believe in Him will be saved.